Our theme for this series is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We firmly believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. Everything changes when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I believe that with all of my heart, mind, soul, strength. I believe it. If I didn't believe it, as Paul says in our text this morning, I would not do what I do. But I do believe it, and so I do what I do. Let me give you just a quick overview. If you weren't here with us last week, you'll, uh, you'll probably need this anyway. Let me give you a quick overview of the book of Galatians. The first two chapters of Galatians, we're in chapter 1, the first two chapters of Galatians include what we might call Paul's spiritual autobiography. They tell his life story, and it shows how he is a true apostle, and he's preaching the pure gospel, which is characterized by grace. We're going to see that over and over again as we make our way through this book. In chapters 3 and 4, the theology of the pure gospel is expounded, and essentially, it is the theology of justification by faith alone and Christ alone by grace alone. In fact, Galatians chapter 3, verse 11 says this, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And then the book concludes with two chapters that are devoted to ethics. Paul takes his theology as he does in all of his letters and he applies it to daily living. We don't know what we know just for the sake of knowing. I hope you understand that. It's amazing to me how many churches are full of people that come week after week after week and buy into the idea that we are just simply teaching from God's word in order that you might develop fat spiritual heads. Okay, that's not what we're about. You understand that, right? That's not why we do what we do. That's not why we open up the book of Galatians this morning. You take what you know, you take your theology, and you make it practical. And that's what chapters 3 and 4 provide us, that, that theology. And then in chapters 5 and 6, it tells us how we should live. And so the book of Galatians would look something like this. We live by the gospel that you can receive only by faith what God has done. That's chapters 1 and 2. And then it teaches us that what we should believe. That's chapters 3 and 4. And then how we should live chapters 5 and 6. That gives you just a little bit of an overview of the book of Galatians and where we're going over the next uh, few months. Now, if you have your Bibles this morning, and I trust you do, If you don't, you can just follow along as I read, but uh, take them and turn to chapter 1 and verse 10, and I want to jump right into our text this morning in verse 10. Paul writes, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And we need to stop there for just a few moments this morning. And I want you to grasp a few ideas about people pleasers, right? In fact, if it's, if it's true, if statistics are true, and they generally are, that's why they call them statistics, there are a good number of us that are here in this room this morning, and if we were really honest with ourselves, we would say we are characterized by being a people pleaser. People pleasers, by the way, don't live for Jesus because they're concerned more about pleasing people than they are living for Jesus, At one point in his life, and Paul says this, at one point in his life, he lived to please man. He kept all of the laws and the rituals, and he did it mostly for the favor of those people that were around him. And that's why you and I do, I'm convinced, much of what we do. Not because we've been changed, transformed by the gospel, and we desire to please the one who loves us unconditionally. 
No, many of us do what we do to please sinful human beings who are just like us. Now think about that for just a moment. Why would you live all of your life just to please other sinful human beings? And I say that whether that is your spouse, whether that is your parents, whether that's your friends, your neighbors, a boss. Why would you live your life solely and completely for the purpose of pleasing other people? Here's what you need to understand about the Galatians. The Galatians are not simply confused about the pure gospel. We talked about that last week and the frustration that Paul has that they have so quickly deserted what he had taught them, the gospel, and it's by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's not just simply that they're confused about the pure gospel. They're acting like people pleasers rather than disciples of Jesus. Let me give you this morning real quickly in verse 10 here. I want to park here for just a moment. I want to give you three characteristics of people pleasers. All right, If you have a piece of paper and a pen, you might want to write these things down. People pleasers, number one, are intimidated by influential people. They're intimidated by influential people. People pleasers yield to the pressure of influential people rather than standing for biblical convictions or principles. It's like the employee, some of you will be in this place tomorrow, it's like the employee who goes into work and he gives in very quickly to the boss who asks him to fudge the numbers just a little bit. The people pleaser, rather than confronting the boss, does what? He fudges the numbers. It's the high school athlete. Some of you are in the room and you play high school sport. It's the, it's the high school athlete who stands silently while the star player tells the immoral joke and everybody's laughing at it. And so he thinks he can't say anything. After all, this is the, the star player on the team. And so he sits idly by and he says nothing. That's a people pleaser. It's the neighbor who never talks about Jesus for fear that others in the neighborhood may look at him as odd or a religious fanatic. It would have been very easy for the Apostle Paul in the text we find ourselves in this morning in Galatians. It would have been very easy for him to compromise on his convictions about the gospel rather than upset the Judaizers and others who were influential. And I will say this to you right now. If you are a people pleaser and you're intimidated by influential people, you will continually be intimidated in this culture in which you and I live in this morning. You will. Because if you've not noticed, if you've, if you've been on the planet any length of time, which based on the age of, of those of us who are in the auditorium, I know it's been a while that you've been walking on this planet, you know that our world is not getting more sympathetic to the gospel where Jesus says, it's all about me. You don't get to the Father, you don't get to heaven, you don't spend eternity in heaven except through me. That's the only way you have a relationship with God. Let me tell you, there are influential people right now that you will interact with on a regular basis who find that gospel offensive. And if you're a people pleaser, you're going to be intimidated by influential people. Number two, people pleasers ignore harmful hypocrisy. They ignore harmful hypocrisy. When we as followers of Jesus say one thing and we do another, or we deny what we say by our actions, by our lives, those things that we have affirmed with our lips, we do a lot of damage to the cause of Christ. And it is our responsibility to lovingly confront that person for their well-being as well as the well-being of the larger community of faith. Here's what people-pleasers do. People-pleasers don't confront even in a loving manner. Now, we're looking at it in the context maybe of the local church this morning, but let me tell you, parents have a tendency to be people-pleasers in their home. There are some of you that have determined a long time ago that you simply want to be a friend to your kids, 
Let me tell you, that's a losing game. If that's your first and foremost goal, just simply to be a friend to your kids, it's a losing game. And eventually, you'll recognize that all you're doing is simply kid-pleasing. People-pleasers don't even confront in a loving manner. They prefer to brush under the rug or ignore altogether, and they hope that conflict or hypocrisy or sinfulness will just simply go away. And we do this because as people-pleasers, we don't want to run the risk of someone being displeased or upset with us. Because people-pleasers are so aware of this possibility, they tend to avoid confrontation at all cost. That's some of us that are here this morning. I'm told on a regular basis that, well, you just simply must love confrontation. I I want to say this right now because it gives me a good opportunity to say it in this particular text. I don't love confrontation. I think anybody that loves confrontation is just weird, all right? If you enjoy that, if you, if you go into a group of people and you say, who can I confront? If you go in your home at night and, think, and say, I hope my kids have done something wrong so that, I can, so that I can confront them. You're a weird person. You need help. They have medication for people like you, all right? I don't love that. Here's, here's what I've come to the place in my life where I recognize that I don't love confrontation. What I do is I simply embrace it when it comes, Right? There's a big difference between loving confrontation and embracing it when it comes. People-pleasers ignore confrontation because they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to be disliked. They don't want somebody to misunderstand them. And so they avoid confrontations at all costs. Let me tell you this this morning. One of the reasons many, many churches are anemic and weak is that we're afraid or unwilling to confront hypocrisy in our fellowship. And that happens when we're more concerned with pleasing people rather than living according to biblical principle. And I'm telling you this, by God's grace and by his leading and by our conviction, we will not be that kind of a church. We're not simply going to go around looking for confrontation, but when it comes, we're going to embrace that. Number three, people pleasers hide from the shame of the cross. They hide from the shame of the cross. In the ancient world, there was no more humiliating death than death by crucifixion. It was gruesome. Some of you have studied the crucifixion enough to know that not only was it gruesome, but it happened in a very public forum. The first century Jewish historian Josephus said it was, quote, the most wretched of deaths. I want to ask you this morning, are you ashamed of Jesus and what it means to be a follower of his? The Apostle Paul answered that question for us. Maybe a verse that you're familiar with in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, which says this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Apostle Paul came to the point where he said, I am not ashamed of this. The bottom line is that people pleasers make idols out of other people because they crave the approval of other people as if at the end of the day, that's what really matters. And if we're ever going to fight the temptation of being a people pleaser, we have to be convinced that at the foot of the cross, we have gained God's approval when we trust in his son's sacrifice on the cross to pay our debt of sin. And he loves us and we are his children. And so we don't live God's way in order to somehow gain his approval or to become his children. We live to please him out of gratitude that we already are his children. I want to ask you just briefly to just do a little inventory in your own life and ask, answer the question, are you a people pleaser? 
Paul goes on to tell them the origin of the gospel, which he preached to them. Look at verse 11. Paul says, For I would that you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul wants to make it very clear to the churches in Galatians that what he taught them concerning the gospel was not a man-made gospel. It came directly from God. Nobody came to his door passing out tracts. Nobody handed him a bottle of water in the park and it had the spiritual laws on the backside of it and he was intrigued by that and so he trusted Christ as his Savior. Nobody invited him to a revival meeting. Nobody invited him to church. In fact, we're going to see a little later on in the text that everybody actually was really afraid of him. He wasn't taught the gospel. He didn't consult with anyone to get it, verse 16 says. But once he had seen the risen Christ, once he had seen Jesus, that was enough. He didn't need to double-check it. Have you ever asked yourself this question about the gospel? Why would anybody make up the gospel? Think think about it for, for just a moment. If you were going to make up a gospel, do you think you would make up the gospel that we preach regularly here at Northwest? One Bible teacher said it this way. I I like this. I want to read it to you. He said this. You're wicked, evil, and depraved right to your core. There's nothing good in you. Would you make that up? I mean, we don't like it as Christians. What What about God? Well, there's only one God, and he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Would you make that up? I mean, even as a follower of Jesus this morning, do you really totally comprehend and understand the Trinity? How about the doctrine of hell? Like, who's going to make that up? Who makes that up? The other philosophies, what they end up doing, they end up saying, well, we're pretty good. God's not far away, and when you die, nothing bad happens, so don't worry about it. That's the continual instruction of most other philosophies and religions. And as I read the Bible, I'm like, my goodness, this is unbelievable. There's one God, and you love him, or otherwise you go to hell. And you're wicked and evil and sinful and separated from him, and he's holy, righteous, and good. And the question is, who made this up? If I was going to make up a religion, this Bible teacher says, it would look like this. My religion would be, we're good, and the more we eat, the holier we get. I think that's kind of the gospel that I'd make up, wouldn't you? I mean, I wouldn't make up a gospel that says you're bad, you're as bad as you could be, and and the only way that you'll ever have a relationship with the one who created you is to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, that that he suffered and died a gruesome death on a cross, and you place your trust in him and you have a relationship with him. Would you make that up? And if you don't do that, you spend eternity in hell. How does that sell? I mean, it didn't sell well in in 35 AD and 40 AD, and it doesn't sell well in 2013, does it? I think the very nature of the gospel lends us to the question of who would ever make this up? Verse 13, for you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. Now, here's what's interesting, because I think at this point, that if I'm the Apostle Paul and I'm as smart as he is, at this point, I would go to a lot of texts to prove that what I'm saying is true. To prove that, that, that look at this verse and, and, and look at this fact and, and what I say must be true. But Paul doesn't do that. And this is really the thrust of what I want you to grab this morning. Paul simply tells us his story. He tells us his story. 
Paul wasn't just disinterested in Christianity. He was actively persecuting the church violently, and he was seeking to destroy it. Flip over in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, and in Acts chapter 9, if you get bored with what I'm saying here for the next few moments, you can read Paul's conversion testimony of what happened to him on the road to Damascus. Verse 1 says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was hostile to the gospel. Look at verse 14. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was the best of the best when it came to Judaism. He was the star pupil. He was the top of the class. In fact, when he was telling his story in Acts chapter 22, some of you are familiar with that text, he tells them that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a Pharisee doctor of Jewish law. To be educated at the feet of Gamaliel was like saying that you had studied investing at the feet of Warren Buffett, right? I mean, you ought to know what you're talking about, about investing. It would be like saying you, you learned how to throw the football with Peyton Manning being your coach. No doubt his parents had a bumper sticker that said, my child studies with Gamaliel. I'm amazed at as I drive around and carry, you know, my son is a star pupil at so-and-so elementary school. And I'm like, woohoo! Woo, star pupil at an elementary school. As parents, we would have done that. The Apostle Paul certainly would have done that, right? Star pupil with the, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. I've got this kid on board. This is my kid. He was a big deal. Paul was a big deal in the Jewish world. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5, he wrote this. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. I did everything that I was supposed to do. Look at verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and he who called me by his grace. This is a fantastic verse. This is the testimony of Paul and a great reminder how we believe that salvation is all about God and his grace and it's not about how good we are. It really is an illustration of a great, significant theological truth and that is that God draws us to himself. He chooses us. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us, verse 5, For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And I want to take just a moment to remind you that God not only chooses us to salvation, not only does he draw us to himself, but he also gives us a purpose and a reason for existence. He calls us to do something. There are many that have bought into the idea that I simply get this ticket that's, you know, get out of hell free. And someday when I die, when I get to the gates of heaven, I simply present that ticket to Jesus. And he says, you got the ticket. Welcome on in. That that's all that happens at salvation. Now, that's a great thing. My sin debt has been marked paid in full. 
I'm no longer held accountable for my sin. God has paid the debt. That's a great thing. But God calls us to something. He calls us to do something. And that's exactly what he did with the Apostle Paul. Even before he was born, he was set apart and he was called. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 makes it very clear that God has given us a purpose and a reason for existence. He's given us things that we're supposed to be about, things that we're supposed to be doing. Be a great thing for some of us to find out exactly what that is. Verse 16. God was also pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 9, I referred to that a few moments ago. We read about Saul's conversion. I want to read verse 3 in chapter 9 of, of Acts. It says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. This was an incredible encounter that Saul had with God. Verse 16, the end of verse 16. I did not immediately consult, Paul says, with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. This is an interesting text in Galatians because we're not sure exactly what Paul did when he was in Arabia. Most Bible scholars believe that it was at that point that Paul gave himself to study and to prayer and to meditation and he met with the Lord alone. He was no doubt involved in evangelism, telling people what had happened in his life. He was certainly growing in his personal spiritual life. The Apostle Paul had received three years of teaching from the Lord at this particular moment and now he was going to, the disciples received it and And now the Apostle Paul, as a disciple, as an apostle, was going to have his own opportunity to be taught with the Lord. Most Bible scholars believe that's what's going on in verse 17. That's what he's talking about. Look at verse 18. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who also is Peter. And I remained with him for 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Paul went to visit uh, in Jerusalem not to learn more about the gospel message, but to meet and to become acquainted with. In fact, that verb in the, in the original Greek language means to visit with the purpose of getting to know someone. And so he meets with, with Cephas, with Peter, who obviously knew the Lord Jesus intimately. And I, and I think it's interesting, he also meets with Jesus' brother. If there's no greater proof for the gospel and for the reality of the gospel, it is a brother who confesses that his brother is the Son of God, the risen Christ, right? I mean, you think about your brother, if you have a brother. What would your brother say about you? Would he confess you as God after living in the home with you? And I think it's interesting that, 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 that Paul goes and he, and he visits with Peter and he, and he visits with the brother of Jesus, And he becomes acquainted with them. And no doubt, they share their intimate experiences with with the Lord and and what it was like to walk with them. And in the case of James, what it was like to live with the Lord Jesus. And so he spent that time getting acquainted with them. Verse 20. (laughs) I think it's interesting that he writes in verse 20, In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Now, Now, typically, 
I would say to you that if you have somebody that's telling you a story and they're continually telling you, hey, I'm not lying, guess what? They probably are, right? They probably are. That statement, along with many others, contradicts the claim, by the way, that many liberals make about uh, the Apostle Paul, that he was just simply a sincere and highly capable leader, but that many of his teachings reflect only his personal ideas and preferences. And if that were so, he would either have been terribly self-deluded or else he would have been a shameless liar and he wants everybody to understand and know that he's not lying, that he's telling the truth, that he's actually met the Lord Jesus, that the Lord Jesus appeared to him, that he's been with God and he's convinced of this gospel. Paul's point is that part of this letter was to affirm that he'd received the gospel directly from the Lord, not from the other apostles. And so he only visited the two of them for two weeks and only after three years had elapsed since his conversion did he come back and, and start preaching and teaching about the gospel. And so any accusation that he was a second-hand apostle, that he was receiving his message from the Jerusalem apostles, that was false. Look at verse 21. He said, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicily, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. Back to Acts chapter 9 and verse 20, we read that immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. There are people that are listening to the Apostle Paul and they're going, isn't he that guy? Isn't he that guy that we're supposed to be afraid of? Isn't, isn't he that guy who was actually putting Christians to death? This would be like for us. Imagine in World War II if Adolf Hitler would have come to know Jesus and would have gotten on the radio and all of a sudden started proclaiming the name of Jesus and proclaiming the gospel, what, would we, what might we have thought about him? This would have been like Osama bin Laden all of a sudden getting on TV saying, please forgive me for what I've done. Forgive me for, for, the, for the deaths that I have caused. Forgive me for, for, for all of the hurt, all of the pain I've caused. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That would have been a pretty... Amazing, spectacular thing. Imagine Saddam Hussein before his death. Imagine him getting on TV and proclaiming the truth of the gospel. That's how radical this is, what's happening here as the Apostle Paul starts proclaiming the gospel truth. This was an incredible story. It was the story of the ability of the gospel of Jesus to change a life, even though that life was committed to the very destruction of the gospel. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, And they glorified God because of me. Now you can look at that verse and you can think, wow, what an arrogant man. And they glorified God because of me. Here, here's what you need to understand. Paul only tells his story because he knows it's a story of the awesome grace of God. He never tells his story to draw attention to himself. 
It's amazing to me how many stories I hear or I watch on the internet of people that have come to faith in Jesus. And maybe you've been in this situation as well and you wonder, are they telling their story for the glory of God or for the glory of themselves? The Apostle Paul only tells his story because he is a picture of the awesome grace of God, never to draw attention to himself. And I believe our story should be told that way as well. Our story should never emphasize or glorify our sinfulness. It should never be about us. It should only be about the amazing story that we have because of an amazing God who loved us enough to save us. Let me ask you as we close this morning about your story. On a regular basis as I'm sitting with uh, guys or even with a group of people at, uh, as Matt says, at a Chick-fil-A, because that's where all good conversations happen. Although good conversations happen in Mexican restaurants too. On a regular basis when I'm sitting with people and I say to them, I make this statement, I just simply say to them, hey, tell me your story. If it were just you and I that were sitting at the restaurant today and I said, hey, tell me your story, what would your story be? In fact, let me take it a step further. Would you have a story? Do you have a story about, hey, this is who I was, and then God, God changed my life. He transformed my life. I was headed this way, now I'm headed this way, and here's my life since encountering Jesus. Do you have a story like that? And if you have a story like that, let me ask you the question, do you look for opportunities to point people to the power of the gospel. One commentary that I read this week put it this way, and I think it was really good. The gospel is more than a flannel graph illustration to charm children. It's not just a message about how to feel better in life. It's a relationship with the God of the universe. And let me tell you this morning that whether or not you have a testimony that's similar to Paul, and I doubt many of you do, that you were a persecutor of Christians, if you do, see me. I'd love to hear your story. Not many of us have a testimony like that, right? A lot of you have a testimony that's similar to mine. I came to know Jesus when I was nine years old. And let me tell you, nobody had to convince me that I was a sinner. Nobody had to convince my mom that I was a sinner or my younger sister or my older sister. It was very obvious that, there was, that I was depraved, that I was a sinful human being. That's an incredible thing for a nine-year-old to encounter Jesus and to say, I'm going to live my life now in a different way because I'm going to live it for Jesus. Some of you are like Dima. As a 16-year-old, he came to understand he was confronted with the truth of the gospel. And Jesus met him right where he was, even though for a year he refused to acknowledge that there even was a God. I don't know what your story looks like, but I know that no matter whatever your story is, that your story is a story, if you've trusted in Christ alone as your personal Savior, it is a story of the power of the gospel. Brennan Manning author, speaker. He wrote the Ragamuffin Gospel. Some of you will, will recognize that. In fact, he died in April of this year. He wrote this. DC Talk gets a lot of credit for it, but Brennan Manning actually said it. The single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyles. That is what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. What he's saying is this, the single greatest argument for or against Christianity has always been Christians. 
A person that says one thing with their lips and behaves another way on Sunday and then another way on Monday is a strong case that the pure gospel really changes nothing. But a transformed life, a life lived to the glory of God is a powerful proof that the gospel has the ability to transform lives. Let me ask you this morning, what kind of message, what kind of testimony are you for the gospel? Would your neighbors want what what you have? Or, Or better yet, do your neighbors even know that you have something that maybe they don't have, that you have encountered, like Paul did on that road to Damascus, that you have encountered the living God. You have come into a relationship with Jesus and everything has changed. You once lived for self. You once lived for the things of this this earth, those things that are horizontal. Now you live vertically. You live to please Jesus. Transformed life lived to the glory of God is powerful proof that the gospel has power to transform lives. And that's why the Apostle Paul tells his story. He says, look, you might argue with me. You might fight against me. You might say that I'm preaching a false gospel, but let me tell you my story. Let me tell you what happened to me. I'm a changed man. Paul's encounter with Jesus changed everything. And that's why he wrote later to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When we live in that way, I would argue that we are the best argument for the gospel. The gospel then becomes irresistible when people live differently because the gospel has changed, has transformed them, and as the Apostle Paul says, then God gets the glory because of us. I trust that you're living your life in that way. We're going to here in just a a few months be involved in in raising money to build a building. And for me, I guess I look at this and I think, wow, if we are not committed as followers of Jesus to, to live in that way, to be the best argument why the gospel has the power to transform lives, then shame on us, we should never build a building. We have nothing to offer a lost world. I really believe that when the gospel is lived out, when the gospel is lived out in our lives and we demonstrate that it is transformed, that it has changed us, then I believe the gospel becomes irresistible. And I believe that's what God intends for us to do. That doesn't happen, by the way, with just pastors, with just church staff, with just elders. It happens when those of us who name the name of Jesus are committed to being the best argument that there ever was why the power of the gospel has the ability to transform and change lives. I pray that you'll live that way. I pray that I'll live that way. I pray that as I live in Cary Park, that there's nothing that I do that brings shame to the gospel that causes a person to say, if that's what that is, I don't want any part of it. But we live our lives in such a way 
that we bring honor and glory to God. And we give the best argument we can for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that's found in your word. God, I, I know it'd be so easy for us to walk out of this room this morning and just to have heard nothing than wah, 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 wah. Just white noise. Because so many of us have heard the gospel so many times that I think it's falling now on deaf ears that we think that was just something that we did in the past. And, and yet, God, I pray that you'd cause us to become convinced that the gospel we in reality have come into a, an authentic saving relationship with Jesus Christ, it changes everything. We live in a different way. We live for a different cause. God, I pray for that man, that woman, that child, that teenager this morning that sits here and will walk out of those doors the same way they came in. God, I pray that you'd, be, you'd cause us to be convinced that the gospel changes everything, that we are the best argument either for or against the gospel. I thank you that Paul gave such a great argument for the gospel because of his transformed life. And I pray we will do that as well. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.